Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Engendered, the show that features stories that explore the systems, practices, and policies that enable gender-based violence and oppression and the solutions to end it. We use gender as a lens to understand power and oppression, teach feminism, and decolonize hearts and minds one story at a time. Engendered is sponsored by Can Do It, spelled K-A-N-D-U-I-T, and I'm your host, Terry Yuan. On this episode of the Engendered Podcast, our guest is Jennifer Block, journalist and author of the book, Everything Below the Waste, Why Healthcare Needs a Feminist Revolution. We speak with Jennifer today about the ways in which the healthcare industry, from preparation and trainings of doctors to research devoted to understanding women's bodies, to the dismissal of women's pain, contribute to a culture where women's health is systemically ignored and minimized, and women's trauma in response collectively normalized and accepted. We explore what it means to be a woman navigating our culture who centers her own health, well-being, and care, and the obstacles she encounters and must overcome every day. Welcome, Jennifer. Hi, thanks for having me. I think I mentioned to you when I was reading the book, I needed to take some time. After reading, I would get so upset, and I needed to put it down. Actually, talking about this now is getting me (laughs) teary-eyed. As I was preparing for the interview, you know, I, I take down notes when I'm reading a book and I type it and I reflect and I was getting weepy. It's, uh, it's a reaction that I've, you know, heard plenty of people have told me that they had to take breaks reading it because it made them so angry. And I think with healthcare, even for me, I mean, I think, you know, there's something very fundamental about healthcare and being taken care of and, you know, being part of a community that cares for you. And when it's failing, it's really a failure of the community that feels very personal and um, emotional. And I get that way too. Thank you so much. I mean, I think every woman should read this book. And so our conversation obviously is not going to touch all of the detail and the rich anecdotes that you've been able to gather. It, It appears from like, was it decades or almost a decade of research how long did it take for you to actually you could prepare? Say almost a decade. I mean, the, this book really grew out of pushed my first book, and I certainly wasn't working on it full time for a decade. Um, I also had a baby in the middle of that decade, so. <laughs> but the seeds of it were really they. It grew from the first book, and and it was something that I was formulating and working on in one way or another for yeah about that long. I want to be able to do justice to the um, the main topics that really resonated with me. I thought that there were a lot of analogies that you shared in the examples that I think were also relevant to what women are experiencing in other spaces in their lives, not just in healthcare. And they're, they overlap in similar and unfortunately, <laughs> similarly negative ways. You ended your first, your introduction with I think a really great quote referring to your son, actually. And you said that he taught you that what we believe about our bodies and how they deserve to be treated is learned. What do you think women are taught to believe about our bodies and how they deserve to be treated? I think that we, we don't demand as much as we need to of our, of our um, care providers. And uh, I think that it does relate to um, what we believe about how our bodies need to be treated. And I think that our, our bar is pretty low. I think that, you know, when, when we find a physician or a nurse practitioner or a provider, a midwife, herbalist, anyone, when we find someone who listens to us and respects our 
choice about what we're going to do about a condition. It's like, you know, that that it's a rare thing and we hang on to those providers and 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 that really should be like the standard of care that you know you're listened to that the decision is in your hands always that you know you get the information and you get the the choices but ultimately it's up to you um and unfortunately i don't i don't think that's the standard of care and i think a lot of the problems that i report on we can blame them on failures of the system and we can look back at the history of modern medicine. But ultimately, I do think that the the patient, the consumer, women, you know, we do play a role because if we demanded more, then ultimately we would get it. That's how we've achieved certain reforms in medicine that we take for granted now. Like it wasn't that long ago that you would go to have a baby in the hospital and your partner couldn't be with you. You were completely alone. And we got partners to be able to be in the delivery room because we demanded it. And there was a famous story of a father in Seattle who who handcuffed himself to the hospital bed of his <laughs> wife um, to stay, you know, to be able to stay there. And, you know, uh, so when we when we demand certain certain things we we move the we move the needle and frankly i don't i don't think we demand enough we don't um think we deserve enough you know when you use the word demand i think it's contingent on knowledge right and so much of what your book is exposing is that there's this i don't know if it's the word conspiracy is accurate or if it's too strong but there's there are co-conspirators in various sectors of society and different systems in healthcare, you know, doctors, nurses, in various scenarios you gave were complicit in engaging in physical harm towards women and and uh, and their care. And of course, the pharma industry and research. And then as women ourselves, we also stood in our way, as you said. So it's almost like there's this whole group of people, everybody really is part of it, who are conspiring to keep information and knowledge away from women so that we can demand better for ourselves. And what are some of the ways in which historically women's health and what, you know, what is good for us has evolved over time in history so that things that are good for us, what comes to mind or botanicals have been deliberately hidden um, and, and also just looking back at the history of women's health and gynecology, could you start there maybe? Well, I mean, the system in general doesn't reward the transmission of information. That takes time and it's not a billable service. You know, it's not um, an intervention that you're giving to a patient. And so sitting with someone for an hour and just talking um, is something that I mean, that, that's the premium care that people pay extra for now. The concierge primary care doctor who can spend an hour with you <laughs> and tell you everything you want to know. We have a multi-tiered system of healthcare, and that's like the top tier. You pay for that. And so the, the history of modern medicine in a nutshell, <laughs> you know, in the United States is that, you know, the people who we put at the top of the pyramid of authority, of, of authority over health and over our bodies are, you know, medical doctors right now. And that's only been the case for, you know, 150 years. The history is kind of ugly. So it, it really was, um, it was not that medical doctors had more knowledge at the time. It wasn't that their practices were any more 
evidence-based to what we call evidence-based medicine now. They weren't more scientific. Um, they were really trying to organize as a profession and get foothold in the market. Um, and they had a very easy target in that takeover of the market in midwives who were, you know, the primary pregnancy and childbirth providers for women. But they were also more like they were the ones that people called to treat their kids. They often dealt with death. And they, you know, they had, you know, midwives are the oldest or second oldest profession, right? So they they had a lot of accumulated knowledge that, uh, and about botanicals, but about the body. And uh, they, but they, they had come from the old world. Many of them were not English speakers or they were um, enslaved women or had been enslaved women. And so um, they were women of color. They were indigenous women. They were not organized. And so it was really, quite honestly, a hostile takeover by mostly white men, almost all white men at the time. And uh, they succeeded in passing legislation that required licensing and quickly, you know, put midwives uh, out of business very quickly, like within a generation. Within a generation, birth moved into hospitals, which are at the time not any safer. In fact, you know, we have a lot of good evidence now that those early births caused more infections um, because doctors were moving between sick women and um, women giving birth and, you know, that babies didn't do as well. And I think the bigger issue is that we don't even, we, we can't even quantify how much knowledge was lost in that takeover. There was a loss of knowledge in, in Europe because there were, of course, persecutions of midwives there. And then the ones that made it here saw that happen again. So, so we lost knowledge. I mean, we tend to think of, you know, history as this linear accumulation, you know, and science as this linear um, progression that we've, you know, just learned more and more and know more and more. But um, when you look back at the history of medicine um, and healthcare, it doesn't quite look as linear. It looks like, you know, we might have actually had a few steps back. <laughs> um, and, and this trend really mainly just applies to women's health, right? Not so much men's health. Would that be accurate or do you not have enough information to make an assessment? That's a really good point. I am not a historian and um, my, you know, focus has been on women and, um, you know, midwives were primarily there for the unique event of pregnancy and childbirth, which is unique to women, people with uteruses. So I don't, I don't think it, that this affected men as much because they didn't like lose something. Um, I'm just going to infer that. I don't that. know if a medical historian <laughs> were here if they would, if they would argue with no, me no, on that No, no, it's okay. I, um, I feel like you have enough yeah. information in your book for us to be able to comfortably infer that because so many people that you've quoted have designated, you know, the term women as having experienced such exceptional maltreatment. <laughs> and and yeah. so no, I don't, I mean, the they're not saying men that, too, humans, so. Right. <laughs> the other thing is that, you know, historically, and certainly in the 20th century, the most research occurred on male, adult male bodies. So that has been the baseline for, you know, dosing pharmaceuticals and for our understanding of disease. And that's why as we've moved into a more, some call it gender specific medicine, um, we learn, oh, women have totally different symptoms of heart attack. We have 
totally different um, metabolism of alcohol. Like we've, we've learned there, you know, we, we don't need as much of a dose of X drug, like, and that, and that wasn't really appreciated until relatively very recently. Um, and of course, you know, then there's the whole other realm of bias that um, women have been dealing with since the, you know, inception of modern medicine, which is we're hysterical, <laughs> that our complaints are, you know, they're either, it's either our uterus or our, in our head or, you know, that that's been with us all along in a way that I don't think it has for, for men. In describing the evolution of modern medicine and healthcare for women, it's really the intersection of basically systemic sexism and capitalism and, and, and racism. racism, right? Because, because of the history of Yes, ra- because another piece of the history is, is of course, that, um, you know, surgery began with gynecological surgeries that were done on enslaved women. And that was like the birth of modern mm-hmm. surgery. So we have to recognize mm-hmm. that too, that these were, um, this was way before there were any standards of medical ethics. And <laughs> these physicians literally owned their patients' bodies. Um, and uh, there's a great book by Deidre Cooper Owens called Medical Bondage, um, which details this history. And I think her book is one of the reasons why the statue of uh, J. Marion Sims was moved from Central Park not that long ago. Yeah, yeah, I heard about that. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So so some of the the ways in which the sexism has manifest, let's just start with ovaries, for example, and the perception that sperm are basically the active agents of decision-making with regard to conception. And so with the subsequent knowledge about cervical fluid, et cetera, there was more evidence that the egg had you know, played basically more of a role or the primary role. I don't know how to describe it, but, <laughs> but um, one quote that I struck me in that chapter was how menstruation is a disposable phenomenon. And just the view that women's organs, reproductive organs, such as ovaries, you know, as a result are also disposable. And so can you talk about what is the role of women's ovaries and women's health? And what happens when we remove them and the negative consequences health-wise later on. Yeah, I think what you're touching on is that, you know, there's one dominant thread when you look back at the history, which is that we've tended to dismiss the importance of the female sex organs, and we've been very willing to surgically remove them and still are. You know, women in the United States, one of the highest hysterectomy rates in the industrialized world, you know, twice the rate of Um, countries in Europe, and still a good portion of those do remove the ovaries as well. So the the hysterectomy is removal of the uterus, possibly along with the cervix, usually along with the cervix now, and possibly the ovaries as well, less often now. In the book, I get into a, a fertility lab, which I don't think too many journalists have been able to do. And I found it really fascinating to just kind of look at how we, all the things we have to do to mimic the physiology of conception when when IVF occurs. And there's actually a lot that the female body does. It, it's very, it's actually choosing the sperm. And we don't really understand like what it's looking for in a sperm. But yes, so our cervical fluid that we produce, if we have a uterus and functioning ovaries and we're fertile, then every cycle 
before we bleed, when we are able to conceive, our our servants secrete this, you know, egg whitey fluid, which is what if you're getting, if you're trying to get pregnant and you read Taking Charge of Your Fertility by Tony Weschler, she tells you like to look for this stretchy egg white substance because that means, you know, get it, get it on. <laughs> that's going to bring the sperm right up there. And so we know that that cervical fluid is actually like filtering out sperm that are um, less worthy. And then like, there's more mechanisms once the sperm have to get to the egg. And it's quite, it's quite fascinating. And so like my deep dive into fertility medicine showed all the ways that we have to like replicate or, you know, transcend those processes to actually create an embryo in the lab. But so, yeah, the, the, so our, our ovaries are what creates our cycle. And so if you're having a cycle, you have, you know, you might've seen a graph of your estrogen and your progesterone and your FSH and your FH fluctuating. They're the, the like wavy lines happening. And if you are, say, taking hormonal contraception, so the pill, the patch, the ring, the shot, you're basically like flatlining all those levels. And that's really interesting to me because the narrative that we often get from clinics, from doctors, from nurses is hormonal contraception is like mimicking pregnancy. Um, You're tricking your body to thinking you're pregnant so you don't get pregnant. And that's really not not what's happening. And what, what some experts say is actually it's tricking your body to look more menopausal, which is concerning. So, so if you've turned off that cycle and flatlined those hormones or um, more severely, if you have your ovaries removed, you're losing this cycle that um, is part of your endocrine system and is interacting with all the other hormones and affecting your metabolism and your bone density, your heart function. And it turns out also your mental health, your sexual response, your sexual health. Like we sort of have one, one of my podcast interviews, um, I think with Amanda Laird, she said, it's like uterus island. Like we think of the female reproductive organs as like in their own little island, you know, and we can just pluck them out and it's no big deal. But they are, no, actually they're they're part of our whole body physiology. And Um, And that's why, you know, we see now we have like big studies out of Europe showing, especially for younger women who are on hormonal contraception, the association with depression and suicide is actually much higher. And then there's also a lot of studies linking to higher risk for diabetes, heart disease, you know, there's a whole, whole list of things. And so with the ovaries, unfortunately, if you have your ovaries removed, you have an overall higher lifetime risk of mortality. Like it's a, there's a a shortened lifespan associated and those people actually do benefit from hormone therapy, which is a nuance that kind of got lost in the, what happened to, you know, it used to be the standard of care that as you're hitting menopause, you should take, you should get hormone replacement therapy. That's what it was called because it was going to prevent all these bad things from happening. And then whoops, we, we did this major study, the women's health initiative, WHI and um, it looked like uh, actually no. If you're if you're doing that, you're increasing your risk of a bunch of things like stroke and heart attack. So they 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 said nope. Everyone threw out your pills like overnight. But the reality was, if you had had a hysterectomy with your ovaries removed, you actually sh- it benefits you to stay on those hormones because you've lost part of your your endocrine system. So 
So these organs do have important functions and not just during our reproductive years. It turns out the ovaries don't like totally shut down. It's not that simple. <laughs> and, um, you know, they change. And you know what? Unfortunately, like there's not enough research. Um, there hasn't been enough research done to actually be really specific about what they, what exactly they do, but we know that they don't fully shut down. And you mentioned also in terms of the ovaries for women who are fertile, who want to preserve their fertility by, let's say, extracting eggs, that that actually is a risk to their future fertility, not just future fertility, but also future health in other ways. And, uh, you know, some of the symptoms of removing ovaries that I was really quite surprised about, besides what you had already shared, is the increased like gestational diabetes and diabetes during menopause, so, like you were saying, impacting later age health. And so this holistic view of how our sex organs work together to keep us healthy is part of the problem that the medical establishment doesn't care about it or doesn't embrace it and doesn't have a philosophy of care that centers, you know, all of these organs as being important. What well, sort of goes back to the values that, I mean, it's really reflective of, of our societal values that we value women's reproductive capacity, right? And so like when you're 19, no one wants to give you a hysterectomy. There are like women who have terrible endometriosis who beg their physicians for a hysterectomy, who were like, I will never have kids. I like Lena Dunham, for instance, had to beg, beg, beg and plead for a hysterectomy because she was just getting no help for her endometriosis and she was in so much pain and she was like, I'm just done. So young women have to beg, 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 beg. But once you hit 45 or 44, or once you've had ki your kids, once you've had the kids that you want, well, then they're like, oh, you had your kids. This is the, I mean, this is the experience that I've heard so many times. I'm not saying every doctor is like this. They're not. But so many women told me, oh, you know, they said, well, you had your kids. Like, you, you know, you're, you're having some regular bleeding, you're having some pain, you know, eh, fine. Like, let, let's just take it out now. Like it's, a, like it's done. There's no, there's no other value to it. And the other important thing to know, I think this knowledge is even less known is that, you know, the uterus is connected to your, it's the bottom of the uterus is your cervix, which is the top of your vagina. When, when you're penetrated by a penis, or if you stick your fingers all the way up and you feel what's up there, that's your cervix. And so if you have a hysterectomy that removes your cervix, or even if it doesn't remove your cervix, let's say it removes your cervix, what do they do with the top of your vagina? Like so many people don't know this. They sew it into, like they close it up. It, it becomes what they call a pocket. And it often shortens the vagina a little bit. And now the anatomy is different. So it can prolapse. Like now you're relying on the, the surgeon's skill, number one, in reattaching the ligaments. You're also relying on the ligaments that aren't really supposed to do that job because they have to cut some of that ligament to remove the uterus. And it can affect people's sex lives very severely. Not everyone, because you'll talk to women who are like, oh, my, I was having the worst bleeding, the worst cramps. I feel so great since my hysterectomy. That's one experience. But then you'll also hear from people who are like, my sex life is over. I'm incontinent now. I can't poop. You hear both. And that's why, because it really, you're, you're risking anatomy. And the other, the other thing that physical therapists understand is that the uterus is sort of at the center of several ligaments and muscles. 
and pelvic floor muscles. And so when surgery occurs there, now you've changed the anatomy that really holds, you know, what, what did one call it? Like it's the keystone of the pelvis. Of course, there are some instances where you have cancer or, you know, you're just, you've been in so much pain and nothing else is helping you. But I think like the frequency that these organs are taken out indicates a certain cavalier attitude toward these organs that really um, is not justified and is harming women. To your point, the fact that there's a timing of when they decide, when the medical establishment decides it's okay to remove these organs, which is based on fertility. So you're really valuing women based on being a vessel for childbirth. And and so some of the examples I was horrified to read because I do know quite a few women who have had hysterectomies and they've had subsequent complications that sounds similar to what of the symptoms that you shared, but I'm sure that they're not sharing with me all of their symptoms. And some of them, you said pelvic reshuffling may lead to basically your hip bones drifting apart and impacting a woman's gait, diminished blood flow, which can then blood clot issue. I mean, it's just crazy that this procedure, which apparently affects a third of women under 60 have had this without any kind of really alternative to doing something differently that's not as disruptive. And so, you know, let's talk about the um, community of providers and the researchers. Would you say that for the most part, the medical establishment, researchers, insurance companies are there to make money? Or is there, I mean, I I kind of got that impression (laughs) with not, not so much positive intention left from the medical establishment, especially the doctors that are treating these women? What was your impression from interviewing them? Was there, was there, were they kind of caught in a system where even if they wanted to do better, they couldn't? Yes, I think a lot of them are. Um, I mean, the, the term for it is that, you know, we have these perverse incentives in our healthcare system. That is the term that you'll see in the literature. And a surgeon is not rewarded for being able to meticulously remove 25 roids and preserve a uterus. That surgery doesn't seem to be compensated much more than just taking out the uterus, which is very quick. <laughs> I've seen I've seen a, a video of that surgery and it's I think it was about 25 minutes from it's it doesn't take that long because it's you basically have to release it from these uh, arteries and ligaments and muscles, and then it's out. And then you have to just close the person up. But to be able to remove fibroids, um, which is the no- I think the number one reason why women have hysterectomies, that takes skill. That takes a lot of skill to do it and not damage the uterus um, to preserve that anatomy. And I think the maybe the most surprising thing that I uncovered in my in my reporting was that the surgeons who can do that explained to me that that was not part of their OBGYN training. The surgeons who could do that came through general surgery or went and got special, like they went and did special pelvic surgical fellowships so that they could master those kinds of surgeries. And they emphasized to me that consumers, patients, women really don't, they're not aware of this in general, that you know, the OBGYN who they know and love and maybe have known and loved for decades um, is maybe not the best person to be doing 
that surgery or to be really like the only opinion on whether they need that surgery. Because if they aren't skilled in taking out fibroids, then they're not going to recommend that surgery. They're going to just recommend a hysterectomy. This becomes a bigger issue with the devices that have been on the market recently and have been harming women like the pelvic mesh and the eShore contraceptive. Um, they were marketed toward doctors, OBGYNs, who don't have, you know, OBGYN residency is four-year residency. It's a year less than all the other surgical specialties. And they're they're covering a lot of ground in four years. They're not just doing surgery. They're doing well women primary care. They're delivering babies. So they're doing obstetrics and prenatal care. And they're supposed to be, you know, basically endocrinologists for women's hormonal issues. And they're supposed to be able to do some pelvic surgeries. Um, and you just, you know, it, there's just no comparing to a surgeon who's going through a five-year residency and is spending several of those years just doing surgery over and over and over again. And, you know, I think that's one factor that this is what people know how to do. And I think that, you know, I, I don't think that most physicians go into the profession to harm people. I really don't. I think it's not an easy job. It's especially not easy now. Um, it's not terribly well compensated anymore. You know, it's very stressful. And I think the system just does not reward skill in surgery for, the, for, for pelvic surgeries. And one of the things that would need to happen so that um, we would be better serving women and the, the problems that, you know, are pretty common, fibroids, endometriosis, I think would be what, you know, what many of the um, experts suggested to me was like, you know, OBGYN really needs to split back the way it used to be. Historically, OB was separate from GYN. And GYN really was more of a surgical specialty. And, you know, another question is whether they should be even doing primary care. So in the 90s, OBGYNs got to be primary care physicians, which is a whole other field of medicine, you know? Um, and so I think like, you know, some of the experts said like, look, we just have to, they're too, too much on our plates. Um, we should split back OB and GYN and GYN surgeons should go through a surgical residency they should know how to deal with endometriosis. They should know how to do um, myomectomies, take out fibroids and be more skilled. I think we have multiple problems. So it's not like there's a, there's not an evil conspiracy. <laughs> so what can we do? The, the disparity between general surgeons and GYNs, you know, having fewer years, it, it seems like ideally if I were to be, you know, as a patient, I would want my OB or GYN, if it were to split, to have their regular number of years of their internships, which is, I guess, four or five. And then in addition to that, have additional five years of surgical residency, you know, in their specialty, which then ends up to be like nine or 10 years, right? Well, is that yeah, too much I mean, the to ask for? are a little bit less than that. Like, <laughs> like they would, if they were like the, the, the ones I interviewed, you know, they had done their four year OBGYN residency and then they did like a two year or three year, I can't remember, but it wasn't five. It was like two or three year fellowship to be, you know, then a, a pelvic surgeon. Um, yeah. I mean, I think as, as patients to go back to your initial question, like we put a lot of trust, especially in our OBGYNs. And I, I, I mean, it is, you know, it's, it's, it's an intimate situation, right. When we're like spread Eagle and stirrups regularly with a doctor and someone who's known us maybe since we started menstruating or, you know, has delivered all our babies. And so we, 
feel a certain loyalty and a certain connection. But I think we really need to be, you know, more vigilant about asking questions and and getting second opinions. And, you know, and unfortunately, like our system does not make it easy to do this. And of course, we're talking about if you have insurance, if you have coverage, like I think, you know, there's there's a, a bigger problem with um, people underinsured and still uninsured, you know, like, you know, choosing being between surgeons, getting, you know, that's very tough to do. It takes a lot of advocacy and time and, um, you know, and then there's some measure of luck too on stumbling up upon the right, <laughs> the right person who's, who, who can help. Right. But I do think, you know, we need to have more value for these organs that have, you know, multiple functions are not just throwaways after we've had our kids or if they're, you know, suffering some, from some pathology, like, it's worth it's worth it to try to find someone who can help. I think I read one of the people that you interviewed. One of the, I think it was a doctor said that the kind of the quality of the healthcare that a woman gets is really comes down to the you know hospital that she goes to. So it's almost like throwing dice. It's kind of like education and educational equity is based on the zip code you live in. That's very true. I think that quote was specifically about maternity care. And that is a big problem with maternity care. There's unwarranted variation in care, I think is the technical term for it. And it's, you know, this phenomenon where one hospital has like a 66% C-section rate and another hospital has a 17% C-section rate. Um, And basically like everyone has their own rules and their own protocols. And that's unfortunately part of the burden on us. Um, and I think um, part of the specific burden on on women is, you know, yeah, you're pregnant and you do want to know if this hospital has a pretty high C-section rate, then you can, there's an indication there that they are not doing them out of medical necessity or what's best for the baby and the mother. They're doing them because it's part of their hospital culture <laughs> and it has nothing to do with, with health and safety. And so, yes, with um, maternity care, that the hospital you go to is a big determinant of whether or not you are going to walk out with a recovering from a major surgery. Some of the quotes that were in the book around maternity care were very similar to the series of episodes that we did on the weaponization of motherhood in terms of devaluing of the concept of bodily integrity and giving women (laughs) personhood so that we could make choices. Of course, we don't really have personhood because we don't we're not considered equal under the constitution yet, but <laughs> but still, given given the system that we're in, to your point about uh, doctors and cesareans, the episiotomy was something I learned. It was a procedure that for so many women doesn't get consent or gets coerced consent, or maybe it isn't even, they don't even have consent because they're in the middle of giving birth and then the doctor just does it. And it was interesting because the perineum, which is what they're cutting, there was a quote that you had where the perineum is part of the sex organ, the clitoris, so it's more than a surgical incision, it's actually a mutilation of the clitoris, according to the new view of a woman's body, the author who wrote that. So in so many ways, there's like this violence that's not just spiritual violence, but physical violence towards women. 
And the examples you gave, I also interviewed the National Advocates for Pregnant Women, but the examples that you gave, I hadn't heard about from my conversation with them about pushing the baby back into the woman's body because the doctor wasn't there. I mean, those are things that that's when the nurses were complicit. And there were a lot of examples yeah. where the nurses were slapping the women for holding the baby after the birth. I mean, just things that were so, I thought, sexist and misogynistic coming from female nurses. So this is why when I started, I was asking about the industry as a whole, because are they doing it voluntarily or because they really believe that a woman should have waited for the doctor to, to start her labor? What was your feeling from those examples? And how widespread is this, these attitudes and behaviors? Yeah, I do think that we have, we still have a, an unresolved problem of obstetric violence in this country and elsewhere that, you know, those examples. So for those listening (laughs) who want to look this up, Caroline Malatesta in Alabama, Kimberly Turbin in California, Uh, another one in New Jersey. Her name is escaping me right now. But I mean, these are egregious, extreme examples where we know about them because in the case of Kimberly Turbin in California, there's a video. And in the case of Caroline Malatesta, she sued and actually won, which is very rare for um, maternity patients to win unless they have a baby that's damaged. So courts and juries care about a baby that's dead or damaged from a birth. But if the mother is damaged, there's very, very, very rare. I mean, I think Caroline Maltesta is one of the only people who have won any significant amount of money for damage. So she, she has like lifelong nerve damage from nurses holding her baby inside her because the doctor wasn't there. I mean, I think this, these are extreme examples. They're certainly not They're not the norm, but I think there is a norm that many women have experienced where they were not listened to, things were done to them against their wishes. And we have, you know, I can point to this very clearly in the continued practice of denying women with breech babies and women who have cesarean scars from a previous pregnancy, from a previous birth. These people are routinely denied vaginal birth. They're told we don't allow that at this hospital, or our practice doesn't do that. You have to schedule a cesarean. We just don't deliver babies that way. You know, you have a scar, you have a breach, a baby that's not coming out head first, that's coming out bottom first. We just don't do that. And that's something that we don't tolerate in any other area of medicine. We don't ever tell anyone they must have surgery, even if it's going to save someone else's life. We can't compel, you know, a father to donate his kidney to his child. Like we can't, if you walk into an emergency room and you're a Jehovah's witness and you refuse a blood transfusion, we can't give it to you. Right. But in the case of pregnant women, and I think, you know, probably the national advocates for pregnant women interview, I don't know if you talked to Lynn, but you know, she talks about how well do pregnant women have the same rights as other (laughs) adults? Cause it appears that we don't. It appears that we are willing to compel pregnant women to have surgery or court order them to bed rest, or there there are cases, hundreds that NAPW has documented of people being threatened with court orders to have cesareans or threatened with child protective services. Or there's this problem that we haven't dealt with, which is that we think, you know, we, when I say we, I mean like, (laughs) not we, but, but, um, 
medicine seems to have this attitude of ownership over the, I think the female body in general, but especially the pregnant body that once you're pregnant and once you're in the hospital, and certainly once you're in labor, they decide what's happening. And even though forms need to be signed, et cetera, but there is an atmosphere of coercion and you know, just an understanding that you will comply, that there are certain rules and there are certain protocols. And, you know, it's very difficult to be in labor and to be saying no to something and to be trying to negotiate, you know, (laughs) if you're in labor, you are in the middle of an enormous physical event that is very distracting. And that requires, first of all, for, for its safety and for its best outcome, it requires the person to feel safe and to not be fighting, literally to not be in fight or flight, because the hormones of fight or flight actually shut down the hormones of labor. So there's literally a problem there. If, if people are in an, uh, an environment that's unsafe, that's threatening, where they have to fight for what they decide about their bodies, uh, that that's going to have a negative impact on the outcome. And so that, I mean, this is why, and I think, you know, with COVID, we saw this very clearly because all of a sudden there were certain roles and um, they, they took us back to the 1950s. Basically, you can't have anyone with you. You have to stay in bed. You can't have, you, you know, they, there were certain hospitals that like started banning yoga balls and things that didn't make sense from a public health perspective. You know, as one nurse pointed out to me, like, you know, I'm sorry, but if we can clean a labor bed, we can clean a yoga ball. Like what, what's the connection there? And that's why we saw women in droves calling home birth midwives because all of a sudden they weren't going to be able to have their shield of a doula with them. And they weren't going to be able to have their partner. And uh, it was going to be harder for them to get the birth they wanted. And so they, home birth midwives were inundated with phone calls from women who had never have thought of doing, you know, having a home birth before um, because they weren't going to be able to make any choices for themselves. There's a um, an example in your birth trauma chapter uh, where you start off with the meeting of s- these two people who are trying to to uh, get money or get um, a license for a birth center, and they were there trying to convince the zoning board administrator. And it reminded me of an ag- anecdote I heard from child welfare domestic violence trainer, because in both cases, the person that they were, the people, the target audience that they were trying to speak to, the administrator, as well as the child protective workers in the latter case, neither of them ever opened the binder. <laughs> and so when there's important yeah. information, the stakeholders don't participate in learning about it. That's a big problem. And, you know, there's a great quote that you, um, shared by a feminist theologian about how basically the purpose of gynecology is to enforce through violence the sexual caste system. And I think that's so, at least to me, it resonates so much because with this COVID and, you know, maternity crisis, we don't have access to midwives and the ones that do, they don't even necessarily get reimbursed through Medicaid, you shared in the book. And so even if we were to pass Medicaid for all, if their list of services don't include ones that help women make decisions with autonomy, (laughs) then how is that helpful? And so I was actually surprised when Lynn 
or no, it was actually not Lynn. It was um, the uh, founder of the Human Rights and Childbirth Attorney, when Hermine Hayes Klein. Oh, Hermine, yeah, yeah. Oh, Hermine. Yeah. She stated that she thought maybe, I mean, she was kind of equivocating, maybe we need the ERA. And I was just like, what? Why is this not at the forefront of every woman's mind and advocacy? Because like I said, with Medicaid for all, like if we can, we can get that, but without the ERA, we can't actually get these additional right. kind of enforcement mechanisms. So I want to get, you know, as a closing thought, what is your opinion on the role of the ERA in this feminist revolution that healthcare needs? Well, I just want to go back for a minute to the the story of the birth center that the little birth center that could or couldn't. Um, it's a you know a, a nice little anecdote that I included um, because it's so it was a it was a great metaphor for how difficult it is for midwifery and this totally different model of care and a totally different understanding of birth physiology and what people need in childbirth and what's what leads to better outcomes, how it's so difficult for it to fit in our system. So that birth center in Miami, like, right, in, in the city of Miami, which has never had a birth center, the system there, the city uh, government just like couldn't conceive of this thing. Like they kept trying to classify it as an assisted living center. And, you know, the founders were like, no, 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 no one's living here. Like we don't have a dining hall. This is like one person at a time or maybe two people at most are here for 24 hours. Like, and then they leave. This is not an assisted living facility. It is like, they, they just didn't have like the right code for it. Here in New York with COVID, the governor actually issued a very little known executive order that temporarily allows certified professional midwives who are licensed in another state to practice here. Normally, they are illegal. And in fact, there is a CPM or two CPMs upstate who've been charged. One is being charged with 95 felony accounts. And so like we are still actively prosecuting midwives. And these are people who have been through training. They have a, a certification that's recognized in you know 35 other states and licensed and reimbursed by Medicaid in many of those states and private insurance. But you know, there are still states like New York that, you know, just haven't f- been able to figure out how this license could, po- how this credential could possibly fit into our system. And so that's part of the problem that we, and I see this with the media too, like when a, you know, Metro reporter gets assigned a story about why a midwife upstate is being charged with felonies, like they, they don't have any background knowledge besides whatever they think about midwives, which is, you know, that they're like witches in the woods, right? And so that's why, like, the media, I mean, there's so much inadequate reporting about this because there's just our culture. We do not have a cultural, like, they were they were almost erased from our culture, midwives and and what they do. And, and even still, I cannot tell you how many people ask me now, what's the difference between a doula and a midwife? And there is a huge difference between a doula and a midwife. And it's really a testament to doulas that they have become more recognized. Like no one had heard of a doula 15 years ago when I was working on my first book. Doulas were very, you know, (laughs) they they were like only like the fringiest or wealthiest people got a doula. But doulas are suddenly like very well known as, you know, rightfully so because they do improve outcomes. If you're going to give birth in a hospital, 
you know, really the, the care in the hospital is generally inadequate. You don't have enough of a, a, a better, a good enough ratio of nurses to patients. It's not like the, the lore of the old days where like your OB comes and meets you at the hospital at three in the morning. Like that doesn't exist. You know, you got nurses managing two or three patients at a time and basically leaving people alone to labor. So you, you need a doula with you, especially if you're a black woman or an indigenous woman or young woman or a poor woman, because we know that if you fall into certain categories, you're going to get different kinds of care. You're going to get a different attitude. You're going to be responded to differently. If you're in pain or having a serious problem, you're going to be listened to differently. I mean, we have in New York City, the mortality rate for Black women is 8 to 12 times higher than it is for white women. I just read a study about Black babies in Florida. They are three times more likely to die if they're cared for by a white physician. I saw that too. We have a serious, we have serious problems. So there's a problem of obstetric violence and there's a problem of institutional racism and it's killing women and babies. So (laughs) to come back around to your initial question, my understanding is that yes, we do need an ERA to make it very clear to judges and everyone else that pregnant women are not second-class citizens, that we do have the full protection of constitutional rights, because that right now doesn't seem to be clear. Well, isn't it not just pregnant women? I was thinking about research too. Like if we had the ERA passed, we could then say these drugs don't apply to us because they didn't have women in the trial. Yeah. um, I mean, we have had policy on the books since 1992, I think, that, you know, all trials that are federally funded need to include women. Um, And I think there's a movement to, you know, recognizing that um, different racial groups, not because of their race, but more because of racism, have different outcomes. There's mo- there's a movement to to go beyond the historical white adult male in research. Um, and I, yeah, I don't, I'm not an expert on how the ERA would would impact that. <laughs> I'm sorry to say, but I'm all for the ERA. <laughs> <laughs> Too bad that the Democratic National Committee hasn't brought it up yet. <laughs> That's a good point. I've been listening the past two nights and wondering when is it going to come up? Because you talk about the pandemic and we all know there's a gendered impact from the pandemic on women, right? In every single aspect of our lives. Let's get to our concluding questions, which is the engendered questionnaire. We ask every guest at the end of our conversation. The first question is, what is at stake in the struggle to end gender-based violence and oppression? I think... This comes down to our participation in the world. From my perspective, I wrote this book because we're having a lot of important conversations right now about imbalances of power and, you know, how racism impacts that and sexism. And I think that because of um, historic bias in medicine and because of, you know, the phenomenon of over-treatment that I think has disproportionately impacted women. So like we talked about overuse of surgery, overuse of drugs, this impacts how much we can participate in the world, in the world of ideas, in the world of everything. And so that's, I think, the high stakes from my perspective. What gives you hope? Millennials give me hope. (laughs) You know why? Well, I'll say this, millennials and technology, because you know, even in my, you know, I'm a Gen Xer. And when I started working on Pushed, for instance, there was no YouTube. 
or it was very young, but I think it might not have existed yet. It, and, and to go back even further in the seventies, when um, our bodies ourselves was being written and uh, you know, a little bit later when new view of a woman's body was being written on the West coast, there were no images readily available of natural childbirth. You know, the, the, the women on the West coast actually like took some of the first pictures of the cervix in all its phases to show the importance of a, you know, the self-exam and all that. And so like the, the power of story and image, um, uh, women getting together and, and sharing their experiences, that, that is what made the feminist movement, you know, and that's, and the, the feminist health movement was absolutely part of that. Now it's so much easier. And so millennials give me hope because they are willing to go on Twitter and talk about the quality of their period blood in front of, you know, <laughs> however many followers. And it's just, it's just remarkable to me, even as a Gen Xer, that um, people are so, I mean, my, you know, I come from a family where like, you know, New England, prim, like we don't talk about that. Like we, you know, the girls in high school would turn their backs to take off their shirts in the gym locker room. Like, (laughs) (laughs) so the fact that, you know, the younger generation is so willing to share and, and talk about their issues and admit that, you know, talk, talk about their intimate problems with, you know, whatever drug or device, you know, that, that's, you know, what I observed with the, you know, the eShore implant that has caused so many problems and is now off the market, largely because of the group on Facebook, 40,000 people on Facebook sharing intimate details of their lives, sharing pictures from their surgeries and of their bodies um, and organizing. So. And final question, what can we do more of, less of, start or stop to end gender-based violence and oppression? Um, Well, we can definitely have more midwives. I think that is so key to ending the disparities and lowering our maternal death rate, which is one of the worst in the world, and our our infant mortality rate. So we need more midwives. I think in in health, to reduce gender-based violence, we need well, it's another more. It's another less and more. I mean, we need more respect for um, female physiology and less surgery and drugs that override those systems or remove those systems entirely. You know, I think like in, there, there is some legislation um, being proposed that would, you know, reimburse more midwives. So they would include certified professional midwives in reimbursement. I mean, we all need more coverage for healthcare. I think that is so clear now. I mean, it was always clear, but it's it's crystal clear how important it is for a community, whether it's 20 people or 300 million people, to take care of each other. And when we don't, we, we have a pandemic that kills people. So, um, you know, we need to start covering people and, and we need to, we need to stop, we need to stop treating human beings like they're commodities, like they're part of a profit-making mechanism, that they're, that they're something we own um, to do our jobs. We need to stop treating human beings that way. Well, Jennifer, in no way did we cover <laughs> all of the t- important topics in your book. So I'm just going to reiterate, everybody needs to read this book. 
<laughs> to, to make up so for much. all the conversations. Um, I've already texted many, many friends to, to make sure they are buying this. But um, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you for writing this book. And I hope that this conversation will be the beginning of many, many conversations that will grow across our communities about what we can do to start this feminist revolution in healthcare. Thank you so much, Terry. Thank you for reading the book so closely. It's, it's quite a different thing to have a conversation with someone who's really read the book. <laughs> I really appreciate that. Thanks for listening to this episode of Engendered. The show is sponsored by Can Do It Q&A, a peer-based knowledge platform that connects social service providers in advice, community, and learning. You can join Can Do It Q&A for free at qna.kanduit.com. I'd love to get your feedback and hear any questions or suggestions you may have for the show. Please email us at engenderedpodcast at gmail.com with your questions.